Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 is where I'd like to direct your attention uh, this morning. I'm going to read from verses 23 through 33, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, you can um, find a pew Bible. If you don't have one, you can find a Bible in the chairs ahead of you. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that as our gift to you. We would love for you to leave with a copy of God's Word. Um, so you can take that one that's right in the chair uh, if you want. If you want a better Bible, go to Lost and Found, and you might find one there too. <laughs> Don't tell anybody I said that. That's terrible. All right. Uh, well, uh, I do not plan to make this a, a regular practice, but I would like to invite you again this week in honor of God and his word. Would you stand while I read from Matthew chapter 22? Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This ends this reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, inspired word. May he add the blessing to the reading of his word, and may he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. You may be seated. I am sure that I have mentioned this to you over the years at least once, and if I haven't mentioned, you could probably guess this about me. It hardly makes me unique. I am a fan of Sherlock Holmes. I have read, uh, when I was in junior high, I read all of the original stories by Conan Doyle. I have watched several of the television and movie adaptations. I've listened even to some of the old radio dramas. Uh, and in my office for years, there have been little wooden statues that my wife uh, bought for me years ago of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. They watch over my shoulders as I study. And Holmes says, your problem is you do not observe. Um, I like Sherlock Holmes for the same reason that you do, uh, his towering mind that he uses to pursue justice. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is not a model of godliness. He is not someone you would look to for social skills, for help in learning social skills. But don't you, there's this sense of satisfaction, isn't there, when you read the last page or when the credits start to roll and, and uh, the crime has been solved, the arrests have been made, and the victims have been defended. And there's always this degree of awe, this astonishment. How did he figure that out? How did he notice those? How did he deduce that? That's, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. Now, Holmes may not be uh, uh, your uh, uh, preference. Maybe, maybe it's uh, Hercule Poirot 
or Columbo or Jessica Fletcher or Veronica Mars or the Hardy Boys or Scooby-Doo. Uh, can I suggest to you that um, this passage that we just read indicates that you could add Jesus to this list of brilliant minds? As far as we know, the Gospels never record it. He never solved any crimes. Although that does make me think, can you imagine this? Coming next fall, the CBS, CSI Nazareth, right? I mean, that would be horrible. It would just be, uh, at the end of every episode, I, wouldn't have, I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for that meddling Messiah, right? I mean, it's just, it's just a seedbed of heresy. I mean, just, it would just be horrible, um, it, uh, in this chapter, he, we don't know that he solved any crimes. Uh, it's certainly not in the text. But uh, in this chapter, he does demonstrate his own brilliance. Villains ask him questions that are intended to fool him, trick him, make him lose followers, make him take positions on controversial subjects that are going to turn people off. Uh, they're trying to discredit him. But at the end of all the questions that he's asked, the villains are made the fools, and the crowds look at Jesus, and we've seen these two words. They're amazed, they're astonished at his brilliance. You, you should know that about him, that Jesus is brilliant, and this morning I want to, in part, tell you why you should know that. One of the signs that you understand Christianity, or the signs that you are growing as a Christian, is that you're coming to know Jesus more and more. And that knowledge of him is resulting in, in awe, astonishment. I think the way the Apostle Paul described his relationship with the Lord Jesus in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Look what he says. He says, I want to know Christ. Not just intellectual knowledge, but experience. I want to know him so that I become like him. Yes, uh, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he writes about the day that Jesus returns, and here's how he describes it. The day he comes, he, he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Marveling at him. When the Lord Jesus comes, we will be in awe of him. We will be astonished by him. Matthew's strategy here, this passage, is he wants you to know and marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how I want to proceed this morning. Our subject is today, we're going to talk about the mastery of Jesus. And we're going to talk about three things that Jesus mastered. What did he have mastery over? Uh, three things. Here's the first one. Jesus is the master of scoffers and skeptics. Jesus is the master of scoffers and skeptics. Verse 23 tells us about these scoffing skeptics that have come uh, to Jesus to ask this second question in the series of four that are in this passage in this section of Matthew 22. Um, the Sadducees, we'll talk about them for just a little bit. The Sadducees were a fellowship, uh, a kind of like a political party, but not quite, a fraternity, a brotherhood, an ancient Palestine. And Matthew tells us they did not believe in the resurrection. They believed that when you died, your soul was gone and your body went to the ground and decomposed and it was gone too. 
Uh, they are deniers. They deny a lot of things that the Bible teaches. They deny part of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They thought that's scripture and everything else, the other uh, 20, uh, 34 books, the other 34 books are just commentary, just um, commentary on the five or corruptions of the five. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they denied the resurrection. They denied most of the miracles. They denied angels. Um, they despised the Pharisees. The Pharisees were that other religious group that we know more about. Uh, uh, they, they believed in all of the Old Testament, and they had a lot of extra, extra books that gave them traditions and rules by which to live. And the Sadducees thought they were just um, religious uh, dupes who, who followed all those rules. The Sadducees loved Greek culture. That's probably why they didn't like resurrection very much, because the Greeks did not. Uh, they collaborated with Roman rule. They were the elite in society. They were the wealthy who had connections to the temple. Um, Dale Bruner says that when we think of Sadducees, we should think of modern day Episcopalians. Maybe. Their question is designed to make Jesus look absurd. Uh, they uh, object to the resurrection. They're going to make him defend the resurrection, and he's going to look stupid doing it. That's their plan. It backfires spectacularly. So um, their question that they ask has to do with leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is a type of marriage that Moses regulates in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. That's what they're talking about here when they say Moses. And their explanation of leveret marriage is just fine. Moses told us, verse 24, that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. This is the rule. Moses did not invent leveret marriage. It existed before him, but he regulated it. And the rule was very much like what they said here. Man died, no children. His brother was to marry his widow, and that first child that they had would be counted as the dead man's child. It would be his uh, so that his name would not disappear from the genealogies of Israel. Leveret marriage plays somewhat of a role in the book of Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth uh, on the basis of this leveret marriage law. And, um, uh, but by all accounts, though, first century Palestine, uh, when Jesus was alive, it doesn't seem like that law was being practiced anymore, that wasn't being followed. But the Sadducees know someone. They have a friend who, well, seven brothers. Only one bride, but seven brothers. And the first brother dies, and brother number two marries that woman, and then he dies. And then brother number three marries her, and he dies. And four, five, six, seven, until at last, she's dead too. Now, they could have made their point if there were just two brothers, but they made it seven because they want to make this situation laughable. They want to make the idea of resurrection look ridiculous. It is almost a laughable story. I mean, think about it. If you were brother number three, would you want to marry this black widow of a woman? I mean, think about this. Or can you imagine this poor bride, seven husbands? Whew. Or uh, uh, let's think about what the friends of brother number five would be saying on the night before his wedding. It's been nice knowing you, man. I mean, four, 
four of your brothers are already dead, and here you go. I don't know how long you'll last, but uh, good luck with that. You can almost hear them chuckling as they ask the question of the Sadducees. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Because <laughs> the resurrection is stupid. Uh, now, we're going to talk about the content of Jesus' answer in just a minute. But I want to remind you again that we're in this passage of Scripture where Jesus, he so easily fends off these questions that are supposed to make him look foolish. He's not frightened. He's not discouraged. He's not defeated. And when it's over, the crowds are amazed at his insight. I'm glad for this account because sometimes when I hear scoffing, skeptical questions, I am intimidated or discouraged by that, by them. Even sometimes good questions, not necessarily scoffing questions, but good skeptical questions. Sometimes I, I hear them or they're asking me and I think, oh, is anybody, anybody here uh, intimidated that way sometimes? I uh, spoke at the Navigators Retreat on uh, Saturday a couple of weeks ago, and there were many, uh, many of the students on the retreat were navigators from Millersville University, and there were a couple from some schools in the Washington, D.C. area. And after one of the sessions, one of the students came up to me and he said, asked to talk to me. I'd be happy to talk to you. He said, this is what he told me. He said, I, there's sin in my life that I have struggled with for a long time, and I just, I wish I could stop sinning this way, and I get so discouraged by it. I, I repent. I ask God to help me. I, and I just keep living in this sin, this besetting. He didn't use that word, but Hebrews does, doesn't it? This besetting sin. And I get discouraged. And I, I think to myself, if Christianity were real, or if I really believed it, I'd be able to get rid of this sin. And about the time, it seems to always happen, about the time that I'm really at the bottom of my despair over my own uh, failures, that's when I see on YouTube or I talk to somebody or read an article, a really good question that, that, that um, raises the possibility that Christianity might not be true. I'm already struggling with whether or not it's true in my life. And here's this challenge to the factual basis of it. It's this double whammy and it hits me all the time and I'm just discouraged. Uh, is there anybody, does that sound familiar to anybody, that scenario? This is what happens to me. Sometimes, you know, you, you can make a list of the, the top five skeptical questions or top 10 skeptical questions that people ask. And sometimes I'll listen to a podcast or I'll read a book or an article or something, listen to a sermon. And, 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 and the, the person, the, the preacher, the, the author will address that issue, one of those top 10 issues. And I think to myself, oh, that's really good. That's a really good answer to that question. Next time I hear that question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to remember what this person said. And I'm really good at remembering for about six days. And on day seven, I hear that question and I think to myself, now I knew something about this once at one point in time and I can't remember what it is. I am grateful. I'm grateful for followers of Jesus in the church of, uh, of the Lord who are better at answering skeptical questions than I am. You hear them, and I think, I know there's an answer to that. I just can't remember it. It's, I, I haven't learned it yet. So 
I spend time when those questions come uh, looking for the people that I often quote from the pulpit. What did Albert Moeller say about that? He must have said something. Or Tim Keller, what did he say about that? How did did C.S. Lewis ever write about that? Probably. Uh, What about Sam Albury? Or did Rebecca McLaughlin, what did she say about it? She's smart. She must have thought something. I'm grateful because uh, next March, it's on the calendar, March of 2022, we're going to have our rescheduled weekend conference with Mark Farnham, uh, where he's going to talk to us about handling some of those skeptical questions. And I'm really looking forward to listening to him because he's good at addressing. I hope to learn many things. And for uh, after that retreat, uh, after that conference, I am sure I'm going to be unstoppable for six days. So... Um, Do you know who the best question answerer of all time was? The Lord Jesus. He's the master of scoffers and skeptics, and he's able to do it so well. Jesus is not after his goal in life is not to own them. You know, you see videos on YouTube. This person owns the libs. Jesus is not owning the libs. He has the ability to see underneath the, the confusion or the the pain sometimes that is beneath those questions or the hope that is sometimes beneath those questions. It's important to recognize this, to see Jesus' brilliance in this passage because he is about to be crucified. In just a few days, he's going to be crucified. And he did not go to the cross because he was outsmarted or outmaneuvered onto the cross. Think about this. If you cut the Gospels short, they are the most depressing conspiracy crime story in all of the world. If you cut the gospel short, the hero is dead. The plot of the villains has been successful. Uh, The enemies have triumphed. This can't be how this ends. It's not. But the point is here that Jesus did not go to the cross because he was outthought, outplanned, outplotted, outmaneuvered, outwitted to going to the cross. Which, of course, raises the question, if he wasn't outsmarted to get him to the cross, then why did he go to the cross? Jesus is the master of scoffers and skeptics. Number two, Jesus is the master of the Bible. Jesus is the master of the Bible. The Sadducees are skeptics of the Bible, and in verse 29, Jesus takes the opportunity to tell them that they don't even understand the parts of the Bible that they say they believe. Verse 29, Jesus says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures. That's a great line for you to use if you ever give anyone a Bible test and they miss a question, you can write this verse. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures. Or next time you're teaching Sunday school and somebody, asks a, or somebody answers a question, uh, you know, you got to use this carefully. Uh, so you say, hey, who built the ark? And they say, Job. And you say, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures. <laughs> Uh, that's the problem. And then Jesus says, verse 31 and 32, I want to think about what Jesus believes about the Bible. Look what he says. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? Notice here in this passage, in that little phrase even, what Jesus believes about the Bible or what Jesus says about the Bible. Three things. He says, number one, that the Bible is the word of God. He says the Bible is the word of God. He says, verse 31, have you not read what God said to you? 
what God said to you. He's going to quote from, in verse 32, the book of Exodus. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses is the author of the book of Exodus. But Jesus says they're God's words. They're God's words. How does Jesus feel about the Old Testament? Jesus says that the Old Testament is God's word. Now, secondly, what does Jesus say about the Bible? He says, it is for you. It is for you. The original audience, again, of Exodus chapter 3 are the Israelites that Moses is writing to. They're the original audience, but Jesus comes along and he says, that text is for you. Now, we believe this. We believe this even today. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we look through the scriptures, because we believe they're for us. A message from God for us. Dick Lucas, in regard to this, Dick Lucas is a preacher in Great Britain. He says, it's true, the Bible is for you. But in order to read it properly, you have to remember that it is not about you. It is for you, but not about you. Third, what does Jesus say about the Bible? He says that every word of the Bible matters. Every word of the Bible matters. Now we have to follow Jesus' argument here about the resurrection. Notice the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection because they don't believe it's taught in the first five books of the Bible. They, they, uh, but, but here, Jesus uses the second book, Exodus, to, po- to prove to them that resurrection exists. And his argument hinges on the tense of the verb to be. Verse 32, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He does not say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am. It's a present tense verb. We, when we talk about people who have passed away, we talk about them in the past tense. You read the obituaries. This person died, and its sentence says, he was the husband of, or she was a doctor at Lancaster General Hospital, something like that, past tense verbs. Here, though, Jesus points out how Moses, actually God is speaking to Moses in Exodus 3, 6, and he refers, he uses the present tense. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Resurrection is real. Even though those men are buried, they are not dead and gone forever. They will be raised. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And the whole... uh, 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 point that Jesus' argument rests on that present tense verb. Every word matters. Every tense matters in the Bible. Now, let's be a little theological for a minute. We believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. By inspiration, we mean it's, it comes from God. It's God's word. It's breathed out by God. It's His Plenary refers to the ideas, the overall ideas and themes and message of the Bible, the general message and themes of the Bible, plenary. And we believe that the general message of the Bible comes from God. We believe in plenary inspiration. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means it's a reference to the very words, the actual words, not just the ideas and concepts but the words themselves, the very words, the very tenses, it matters that the text says, I am, not I was. 
It's interesting. Jesus seems to indicate this is something that they should have known, that they should have realized. Have you not read what God said to you? <laughs> These Bible scholars. And Jesus says, hey, didn't you read that? It's important to remember to think about this because crucifixion is coming. Remember, crucifixion is coming. And after the resurrection, Jesus will go to his disciples and he'll ask a question similar to this. Didn't you see this in the Bible already? Haven't you read it in the Hebrew scriptures that this is what's going to happen? That what happened to me, the crucifixion and the resurrection, shouldn't have been the shock that it is because it's there in the text. Have you not read Things should be falling into place in your mind. I suppose by this question, when Jesus says, have you not read, it gives me an opportunity to commend to you again this morning the reading of the scriptures. Uh, sometimes our approach to reading the scriptures suffers because we take a certain posture toward the Bible. The posture toward the Bible is uh, that we take that is that the Bible is a source book of inspirational quotes and what I really need when I read the Bible is something to get me through the day. I need caffeine and a good verse to get me through the day. And, and that's the, the posture we take towards reading the Bible. And um, I hope that on a daily basis, the Bible feeds and encourages you. That's, that's good. But we should also think about reading the Bible as, in terms of long-term discipleship. There are some treasures in the Bible that yield themselves after the eighth or ninth time reading them in the fifth or sixth year that you've been after it. Um, sometimes spiritual growth is like the maple tree out in my backyard. Uh, if you look for growth in my maple tree every day, you will be discouraged. But if you look at it in the course of years, there's growth. This is why followers of Jesus, some of the followers of Jesus, saints I know, who are in their 80s and 90s uh, are uh, know more about the Bible than the freshly minted seminary student because they've been reading and reading and reading God's word. You'll see the fruit of it. You'll see the fruit of it one day when one of your Sunday school teachers will be standing up and teaching or I'll be preaching and I'll, I'll give this principle and I'll say, the Bible says this, and it'll occur to you in the back of your mind, something, will, a voice inside will say, hey, that's like in the book of Ezekiel. And then you'll say to yourself, Ezekiel, how do we know anything about Ezekiel? It's because you've read Ezekiel eight times in the past 10 years and, and, and it's stuck. You didn't even see it, but it's stuck there. This after the, the fact clarification that Jesus does, have you not read? Have you not read? I wonder if we're going to be doing that someday in eternity. Jesus will be teaching us the Bible. You know, come to Hosea chapter seven, verse six. Uh, and, and he'll say, hey, do you remember that time in your life? It was that, that season, um, and, and things were really hard. Oh, yeah, that was, it, was, it was terrible. Jesus says, this verse, I, I wrote this verse, this is part of this, the scriptures, to help people like you in those circumstances. It was for you. And then you say, oh, yeah, I should have known before the fact clarification is better than after the fact clarification. So read, 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 read. Jesus is master of the Bible. Number three, Jesus is master of resurrection. Jesus is master of the resurrection. <laughs> what comes to your mind sometimes is terrible. As a, I, you remember Dory the fish? 
her motto, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep reading, just keep reading. Jesus as the master of resurrection. He said to them in verse 29, you're an error because you do not know the scriptures. You are an error because you do not know the power of God. The, the Sadducees had thoughts about resurrection. On the one hand, resurrection is not true. And they thought the only way to have a legacy and the life to come is to have children. You can actually see that in a play on words that's in this passage. Because um, verse 23, the same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, that word literally raising up, there's no raising up. They say there's no raising up. And then they say, um, if Moses told us, verse 24, that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up, same word, raise up offspring for him. The Sadducees, because they don't believe in resurrection, believe that the only way to have any sort of thought about the age, the, life, the, the next step, step of life is to have children. That's what they thought. And, or, if they, they are willing to concede that resurrection might be a possibility, then they say it's just a recapitulation of this life. If you're married to someone here and now, you'll be married to them in the there and then. And if you uh, have a certain life here, uh, you'll have a certain life there. They're, they're just, it's just um, um, nothing's changed except you're alive and not dead. But they do not know the power of God. They're asking questions like Paul had to answer that Jason read from 1 Corinthians 15. What kind of body are we going to have in the resurrection? And, and Paul says, how foolish. You don't know the power of God. Look at verse 30 where Paul speaks, uh, Jesus speaks about this. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, notice very carefully here, they'll be like angels they won't become angels. When you die as a follower of Jesus, you will not become an angel. You hear this sometimes at funerals, at, at uh, visiting times, someone will say, oh, dear Gerald, he's gone on now to be an angel. And you think to yourself, please, please, for my sake, think to yourself at that moment, no, no, no. You shouldn't say that out loud at that moment in time for this Gerald's grieving family. But Gerald, when he passes away, does not become an angel. He, uh, though, will be like angels. Like in what sense? Like in the sense that there will be no marriage or no procreation in that day to come. Your question, Sadducees, is ridiculous because there's not going to be marriage in the age to come. Now, Why? Well, because marriage is a pointer. Marriage is an earthly reality that points to uh, the heavenly truth, the relationship between Christ and his people. It's the sign. Marriage is a temporary sign of a spiritual reality, an ultimate spiritual reality. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Hawaii, do not sit in your hotel room and look at a postcard of the beach. Get out and look at the beach. This is the sign this is the reality. Marriage is the sign. The age to come is the reality. Does that bother you to think about things that way? How some of you, you you've been married so long, you, you can't think about what it would be like to not be married in the age to come. Some people have been concerned by this passage because they think that it means that we're not going to know one another in the life to come. 
that, that we won't have memories of earth and that we're not going to know or recognize one another in the life to come. That's even harder to imagine, isn't it? Because you'll be in a new place and you want old friends there with you. I mean, that's how it goes at work, right? Let's imagine you graduate from high school and you, you start a new job and you show up for orientation. There's a group of people there for orientation at this new company. And uh, you look over and the only person you know is there's this kid who graduated from high school with you. You took a class with him when you were in ninth grade. Uh, um, it was, uh, what's his name? It's either Jack or Jim or John. You can't remember which, but because he's the only guy you at least know a little bit about, you suddenly become best friends at the company, Right? We're going to be in this new place. Are we going to know one another? It's hard to imagine. Uh, Jesus says, no marriage, but uh, I think that the Bible teaches, this passage does not teach, and the Bible indicates in general that we will recognize one another and we'll know one another. We'll, we'll enter the age to come with our memories intact. How, why do I think this? Well, the disciples knew Jesus after he rose from the dead. And in the book of Revelation, there's martyrs who cry out to God for justice. They remember how they died. And in Revelation chapter four and five, around God's throne, there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. You are gonna carry into the age to come your ethnicity, your gender. We're going to be males and females, but there won't be uh, marriage. Dan Doriani says, marriage will end not because intimacy ends, not because friendship ends, but because it proliferates. Every relationship will be safe. Every relationship will be a source of joy. Think about this. Um, your relationship with your spouse is going to be different. You see them in the age to come and you say, here we are. Yeah, we look forward to this day for a long time. You helped me get here. You helped me make it along the way. Yeah, you helped me too. And here we are worshiping Jesus. Some of you have another concern. It's, um, well, some of you wonder, no marriage, no procreation. Does that mean some of you are concerned about the lack of sexual intimacy in heaven? How can heaven be heaven without sex? Um, let me make a gentle suggestion to you. Uh, I, I want to suggest to you that that question, the weight of that concern in your mind, is a question that you ask because of cultural influences. We live in a world that's obsessed with sexual intimacy. And gently, I wonder if you're asking that question because you have an impoverished imagination. In our culture, there can be no true pleasure without sex. So um, if you're, it's the most important thing about you is your sexual expression and your ability to sleep with uh, the person that you are attracted to as much as you possibly uh, 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 can. And that's how you become a real person. Our culture is obsessed. It's a message that it has about sexual intimacy. But let's ask the question with Jesus. Do you understand the power of God? Dan Doriani, again, I'll quote him, uses an analogy that I think is helpful. He says, if you go up to a five-year-old child who's eating a bag of M&Ms and say to that five-year-old child, hey, someday in the providence of God, you might get married and you and your spouse are going to have great joy together, joy that is even going to be better than eating M&Ms. 
and a five-year-old child will not believe you and cannot conceive that there, pun intended, cannot conceive, <laughs> cannot conceive that there's something better than eating M&Ms. And yet, in most happy, healthy marriages, most couples will not stop sexual intimacy in order to get M&Ms. I don't want to be crude, but if you go knock on a bedroom door at certain moments in time and yell through the wood of the door, does anybody want any M&Ms? The response will be, not now. And five-year-olds can't imagine that. They can't imagine that there would be possibly anything better than M&Ms. I wonder if your imagination is so impoverished of the age to come that you can't imagine being happy without sexual uh, sexual. Uh, intimacy. Trust me, you will have in that day to come everything you need to be eternally happy. C.S. Lewis did not have an impoverished imagination. He said, if we could take all of the bitterness and all of the anger and all of the lust and all of the rage that is in hell that has been accumulated, if we could pile it all together, it would not in its weight be able to compare to one drop of the joy of one minute of being in the presence of Jesus. You'll have everything you need to be eternally happy in the age to come. It's a guarantee that Jesus makes. It's a guarantee that he died to secure for you. Remember what's going to happen in the, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. In a few days, Jesus is going to be crucified, and on Saturday, the disciples are going to be in despair, hiding out probably. If they crucify Jesus, what are they going to do to us? I wonder, will it occur to any of those disciples on that Saturday, will any of them look at each other and say, didn't he just talk about the resurrection? It's not ironic that just a couple of days ago, he was talking about resurrection, and here he's dead. Now he's dead. But he didn't stay dead because he's the master of resurrection, and the invitation that the Bible issues to all of you, all, all of us, is to join him in his resurrected life. His death was not an accident. It was not a mistake. It was part of God's plan to secure eternal life for his people. You do not naturally have the sort of eternal life that Jesus is speaking about. And the reason you don't is because your life is poisoned by sin. When your mom calls you to dinner at, that, at the table, she says, dinner's ready, come. And what, what do you have to do before you go to the dinner table? Wash your hands. Don't come to mom's table with dirty hands. How? can you possibly be in God's presence with dirty lives? But on the cross, Jesus paid in full for your sins. He washed your dirty soul with his own blood. And eternal life is a free gift. It's a free gift that you can have if you will turn and trust in the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross as sufficient payment for your sins. It's a free gift. It's a gift that makes you marvel at the Lord Jesus and exalt in this what he said. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this conversation that the Lord Jesus had with these 
vainglorious Sadducees who had such a plot and a plan against the Lord Jesus and he slipped through the knot that they tried to tie around him. Oh Lord Jesus, we acknowledge again that in you are all of the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. You are brilliant. You are great. And, and, and we acknowledge, therefore, that, it, that you are our Savior not by accident, not because God decided to use plan B to rescue us, not because you were overtaken uh, by these tricksters in the New Testament. You went for us and to secure forgiveness and eternal life for us. Grandfather, that we might see Jesus more clearly in the magnificence that is his brilliance with your word and with skeptics and with the resurrection too. We look forward to that day that the Lord Jesus returns and we'll see him face to face and we'll be like him. And, and there will be these wonders, not the wonder of marriage, but the wonders that he has promised. Fill us with joy at that prospect, and we pray with the Apostle John that you would come quickly. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.